Matthew 27, and this morning we're looking at verses 39 uh, through verse 44. So Matthew 27, verse 39. Listen now to the reading, once again, of God's holy word. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we again rejoice and give thanks to you, Father. Thank you for your word. We thank you that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. We thank you for the instruction that it gives to us to lead us and guide us. We thank you for what it reveals to us about our salvation and all that Jesus did for us so that we might have the forgiveness of our sins. And so we ask, Father, that as we come to this particular passage, we pray for your Spirit to be with us, to give us understanding, and to truly go forth with your Word, that it might find within our hearts that rich, fertile soil, which brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We pray now for your blessing upon your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. This was a common response that you might hear on the school playground from uh, from kids who are being verbally uh, assaulted by other kids and and picked on. And the sentiment is surely a, a good one. Right, if you can, t- basically saying, look, you can call me all kinds of names, uh, you can laugh at me, you can make jokes about me, but I'm not going to let it bother me because they're just words and they can't, they can't harm me in any way. But it's one thing for a child to think boldly in that way, and maybe there is again some truth there. But as we grow older, we realize that in reality. We know that name-calling and jokes and mocking can actually cause great harm. In fact, sometimes we think it might actually be easier to have someone throw sticks and stone at us rather than to be there to endure their verbal abuse. It's because the bruises and the cuts on the body can heal over time. But oftentimes the scars left by unkind and vicious words, can cut deep and have an impact on one's emotional and spiritual health for far into the future. 
Well, this may be one of the reasons why we find uh, so many admonitions in the Scripture about uh, controlling the, ten, uh, the tongue so that we're not inflicting that kind of harm. For example, uh, James tells us, uh, uh, likens the, the tongue to a small spark that, that sets a whole forest ablaze, bringing about great destruction. And so words matter. Words can hurt. Words can bring harm. When our passage this morning, in the midst of the intense physical suffering and pain that Jesus endured on the cross, we see here the added suffering and humiliation brought upon him by mocking words and verbal abuse. Indeed, nailed to the stick of the cross, Jesus, of course, is the stone that the builders rejected. And though no bones of his were broken, the taunts and the jeers that were hurled at him truly wounded deeply. Reminding us, yet again, not only the many things that Jesus endured for our sins, which of course is is of first importance, but also as we consider this verbal abuse and mocking that Jesus endured for us, we're reminded that if we would follow after him as his disciples in this world, well, we too can expect to be so verbally abused and mocked. But beloved, praise God that we have such a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us at such humiliating times and is truly able to minister aid to us because he first endured these same things. For us. Well, the verbal abuse that Jesus received on the cross came from uh, three different groups, and we're going to look at those, those uh, three different groups. The first, the first group were those who, who passed by. Literally, it's the passers-by, those passing by on the, on the road. We mentioned last time that, that it was likely Golgotha, was, which was the place where Jesus was crucified, that this was along one of the main roads uh, leading into Jerusalem. And so there would be many people coming and going into the city, uh, even more so now because of the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, that was happening at the time. Well, on this day, those coming and going, these passersby, passersby would see perhaps what wasn't necessarily an unusual sight. There are three men hanging on a cross, having been charged with some serious crime. Now, not only this was a a horrible sight to behold, but but again, public execution of this nature was extremely humiliating for those that were being executed. And this was likely the intent, of course, of the Romans who, who sought to really maximize not only the pain of the crucifixion, but also they sought to maximize the humiliation of the one being crucified. And of course, that also, uh, they uh, did that uh, most likely as, as a visible deterrent to those passing by that they will suffer the same fate, as a warning to them that they will suffer the same fate if they would commit such a similar crime. Well, indeed, the impact of this warning would be greatly amplified uh, during a festival time in Jerusalem, when, of course, we know that many uh, extra thousands of Jews were visiting including, very likely, many who had thoughts of rebellion and often dreamed of getting independence from Rome. Remember, of course, that Jesus was on the cross, that it was intended for Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist, 
one that was rebelling against the Roman Empire. And of course, the two thieves, we remember, were likely uh, two of his associates, two of Barabbas' associates. And even the charge that they have, uh, that the Romans placed above Jesus' head, that he was the king of the Jews. Now we know a Pilate uh, saw no threat in that, but certainly those passing by would take those words and would say, hey, this guy was a real threat to the Roman Empire, and for this reason, that's why he's being put to death. And so this crucifixion sent a strong message to those passing by. And though we might think that the passers-by would, would have pity on, on these who were uh, suffering and, and dying there on these crosses, no, instead they're actually drawn in in a very cruel and uh, terrible way, drawn in by the execution, viewing it as a, maybe a kind of, a, of a, an amusement or an entertaining show along the road. Now, Maybe mocking those hanging on the cross was a common thing, we don't know. But we do know that Jesus in particular drew their attention. Certainly people had had heard about Jesus. They had heard about the great wonders that he had done. They probably had also heard the chatter and the rumors that perhaps this might actually be the long-awaited Messiah. The one who would deliver them from the hands of the Romans. But as they pass by, they look upon him well, he's not looking much like a Messiah. At this point, he's become a public spectacle. And so whatever respect they may have had for him is now lost. And their cruel hearts turn against him. And so in verse 39, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their head. As their hearts turn against him, they're given over to base mocking and, and cruelty. Matthew tells us that they blasphemed him. To blaspheme is to, to speak against or to slander someone. And <clears throat> we most often think of blasphemy in relation to slandering in God. Which, of course, here is exactly what they are doing. <clears throat> unknown to them. Because they have not confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so by mocking him, they're mocking the very Son of God. And so they are actually the one, they truly are blaspheming. And of course, remember, blasphemy was what the Jewish leaders had accused Jesus of when he claimed to be the Messiah, uh, the Holy One of the Lord, who would come in judgment on the last great day. And they also wag their heads. And this was kind of like a, a, a simple action to show their contempt and their scorn at the shame and the disgrace of the sight. And perhaps they were thinking there may be somewhat uh, a bit of self-disgust as well. Like, oh, we thought you were the Messiah. Ha, look at you, a, a pitiful and disgraceful sight. And so to divert away from their own uh, supposed foolishness for maybe thinking he was the Messiah, they turn their anger and their resentment against Jesus. And they express this disgust in verse 40, saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so clearly they acknowledge that Jesus wasn't the political Messiah that they were looking for. And so they denounce him as an imposter and they, they mock him. 
And note the evidence of the distorted rumors that had been going around about Jesus, stating here that the same claim, this was the same claim that the false witnesses had made against Jesus in his trial before the Sanhedrin. That Jesus claimed that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. The accusation comes from the comments Jesus made in John 2. There, Jesus was clearly speaking about the destruction of his body, which indeed was actually now happening right before them. And the rebuilding in three days was a picture of his resurrection from the dead on the third day. But just as the false witnesses had done at the trial, they twisted Jesus' words here and they pulled them out of the con- their context to claim that he said he, was, he himself was going to tear down the whole temple building and then rebuild it in a mere three days. Of course, if they would only wait around and watch for three more days, they would clearly see what Jesus was talking about. And then they continue, Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so they, again, taunted Jesus. And certainly if He could claim to do something as great as tearing down the temple and rebuild in three days, which took over 46 years to build, He should have the power and the ability to save Himself by pulling out the heavy nails that pinned His hands and feet and easily coming down off the cross. And so they bark out orders demanding that He prove to them who He claimed to be. Save yourself. As if the saving of oneself was the highest good that could have been accomplished that day. If only they realized what Jesus was accomplishing by hanging on the cross. Instead they mock Him implying that it's his own uh, physical and mortal weakness that is keeping him upon the cross, that denying that he, he truly would be the Son of God, that he's just a man. That's why he can't save himself. Negligent in the fact that it's actually a combination of divine strength and a commitment to the Heavenly Father's will and, of course, to the great love that Jesus had for the undeserving sinner. That's what kept Him there, hanging on the cross. It would be nothing, of course, for the One who calmed the storm on the sea and who brought the dead to life. It would be nothing for Him to demonstrate His great power by, at this point, coming down off the cross. But that wasn't God's plan and purpose. Saving Himself wasn't the focus of Jesus' heart and mind at this time. Only serving and glorifying His Heavenly Father by dying on the cross for us. No pity or compassion on the dying and fully ignorant of what Jesus came to accomplish. These passers-by rejected Him and shamefully heaped upon Him verbal abuse. But there was a second group standing by watching everything very closely, all that was happening. But they had no pity or compassion in their hearts either. They only had bitter anger and hatred that was now ironically marked by joy and gladness that finally their heart's desire was now coming to pass that Jesus 
of Nazareth was being destroyed right before their eyes. This group was the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders of Israel, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. The very ones who had earlier condemned Jesus in their, in their uh, kangaroo court. They argued against Him before Pilate, speaking lies in their attempt to make Jesus out to be a dangerous criminal. And again, of course, remember, Pilate saw through their scheme. He knew that they were just envious of Jesus. But they were persistent, and they continued to press, eventually stirring up the mob to choose Barabbas over Jesus. Now, these holy men who prided themselves on appearing righteous before the people. They followed in mass to the place of the crucifixion to witness with gleeful delight their mission accomplished. So devoted were they to the destruction of, of Jesus, we wonder what they would do with all their time and energy next once He's gone. They've been so focused on destroying Jesus for so long. Well, here at the foot of the cross, these so-called dignified men stand before what most people would consider a horrible and dreadful sight. But again, to them, it's, it's a most glorious sight. And likely hearing the taunts and the mockery coming from the passers-by, they can't help themselves as they've overcome with wicked joy and anger and resentment, and they join right in, in their, with derision and verbal abuse. But I want you to note the very slight difference between the mocking of the passers-by and that of the Sanhedrin. Now again, even though the Sanhedrin members were there and they were publicly making these comments, we actually see their cowardice and their fear of man once again shining through. Because they don't even have the courage to address Jesus directly. See, the passers-by, they they direct their abuse right at Jesus, and they they address Him directly. They use the the second person pronoun, you. You said you would destroy the temple. You claim to be the Son of God. You come down from the cross. But these refined cowards, they can't bring themselves to even speak to Jesus uh, directly. Instead, it's almost as if they're having a conversation among themselves, though loudly enough for all to hear. And they use the third person pronoun, He. He claimed this. He did this. If He trusts in God. Could it be that perhaps they were afraid of a rebuke by Jesus? Who had so often before publicly rebuked and denounced their own hypocrisy? who had turned their words back against them every time they tried to trap Jesus in His words? It's very possible. And so in a cowardly, passive-aggressive manner, they denounce Jesus as if He's not even there, unable to face Him directly for fear that He may expose them one last time. And so what did these cowardly hypocrites say? Well, first in verse 42, it said, He saved others. Himself, He cannot save. That's exactly true. 
Right? True words had not been spoken by them. Again, there's an ironic twist to their words, which were clearly meant for mocking, and yet they're actually declaring the truth. Note that they actually acknowledge Jesus did save others. And indeed, many of, the mir- many of them were present when Jesus performed many of these miracles. It was undeniable that Jesus had a unique and, uh, power and authority from God to perform miracles. Of course, remember, they attributed it to Satan, and Jesus showed them how ridiculous that thought was. Yet they make this confession to their own condemnation. So they acknowledge His power and authority, and yet they still didn't believe in Him. They acknowledge that He saved others. <clears throat> and yet they did not believe Him. And if they again would watch closely over the next few days, the greatest miracle was yet to come. But consider this as well about these words, He cannot save Himself. Because here also they're speaking the truth. Now we know that because Jesus had the power and the authority of God to work great miracles, that He certainly could have saved Himself. He could have commanded the nails to come out. He could have taken Himself down from the cross. He could have answered their jeers convincingly. He could have done all these things. But He didn't. He didn't because He wouldn't. And therefore, He couldn't. He had fully submitted Himself to His Father's will. And this was the Father's will. That His only begotten Son should not save Himself, but should die for the sins of His people, so that they might be saved. And so when they taught, taunt that He can't save Himself, they're absolutely correct. He can't save Himself. Because if He did, then He wouldn't have been able to save others. And He can't save Himself, because if He did, He wouldn't be able to save you from, from the condemnation of sin and death. He can't save Himself. Because if He did, there would be no payment for your sins. No recompense made to God. No averting or appeasing of God's just and holy wrath. According to God's perfect and infallible decree, Jesus cannot save Himself. And they continue their taunts at the end of verse 42. If He is the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross and we will believe Him. Now again, it's working in their favor to taunt and label Jesus. They call Him the King of Israel, which again, they previously vehemently rejected and denied, except of course when it became a convenient charge for them to to bring before Pilate. But if they had any shred of dignity and truth within them, well, they would have to hear condemn themselves. For they too were blaspheming. They condemned Jesus because He had made these claims and now they, albeit tauntingly, they make the same claims. If they true, truly believe that Jesus was not the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, then to even just ascribe to this to Him, even in jest, would be considered Blasphemy. And then they proceed to lay before Jesus one final temptation. 
Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will not, if he will have him. For he said, "I am the Son of God." Now this is amazing. Wouldn't that be great? If Jesus would once again show forth His His awesome power and authority as the Son of God. If He would even now just, just come down off the cross, He could make believers out of His most bitter enemies and His worst critics. Now we've seen previously that the seeking of signs demonstrates not faith but unbelief. And this is exactly what they're what they're doing. Remember, Jesus called them, uh, these religious leaders, a brood of vipers. They're a gathering of thieves and liars and they're hypocrites. And so their word means absolutely nothing. It's another trap. And not only a trap, it's a great temptation. In fact, in their mocking here, along with the mocking of the passers-by in verse 40, where they said, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In these words, we find an echo of the very same temptation set before Jesus by Satan in Matthew 4. Matthew 4, verse 5, Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give His angels charge concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so Satan is saying, look, if you're truly the Son of God, prove it. Prove it and fulfill these, this Scripture. This is what the passers-by and the religious leaders are saying. Prove it. Prove who you claim to be. Prove you are the Son of God by coming down off the cross. And so through the passers-by and the, and the religious leaders, Satan is once again making one final attempt to have Jesus stray from God's plan and purpose, even as He's there on the cross. Satan's diligently working to, to, have, to have Jesus not do what God wanted Him to do. And so it's a great temptation. And of course, the promise from Satan's lying lips is that these enemies would believe in him if he just does this one thing, if he would just now come off down off the cross. We'll believe. But Jesus knew the lies of the Sanhedrin, and he certainly knew Satan's lies. Jesus knew these hard hearted ones wouldn't have believed even if he came down from the cross. Because in three days, <clears throat> time, one of the greatest miracles of all time, will, will take place. Jesus will be raised from the dead by the power of God. And these same, one, same ones will only harden their hearts. Even after God gave them, as Luke notes in, in Acts chapter 1, many infallible proofs of the miracle of the resurrection, and yet they still would not believe Jesus resisted Satan's temptation and He remained on the cross so that He might achieve what the Father had sent Him to accomplish. <clears throat> but there's one final group who hurled abuse at Jesus as He hung there on the cross. Verse 44, 
even the robbers, even the robbers were crucif- who were crucified with him, reviled him with the same thing. Even those who were crucified with Jesus, these two thieves who were enduring their own painful and humiliating death, even these two were mocking and, and insulting Jesus. And again, this, this kind of amazes us. Here you have these two men, one on the, on the right and one on the left. They're dying themselves. They're enduring a much of the same physical suffering and pain that Jesus is enduring at that time. And yet in their last few hours, in their dying breath, do they evoke sorrow for, for their wrongdoings? Do they seek to comfort their friends or family? Or, or do they even cry out to God in prayer looking for mercy? No. They use what life is left in them to mock and debase the Son of God who is being crucified along with them. Truly fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53.3, that he was despised and forsaken of men. All men despised him. Even these dying criminals offered him no pity. But even here, there was, there was a hope that we don't see in either the passers-by or in the religious leaders. Matthew just tells us that both robbers mocked Jesus. But, but Luke, in his account, records for us the account of, of one of those criminals who later has a change of heart. Now, we don't know what sparked the change of heart. One of the robbers later, though, repents of his sin and acknowledges that, look, we, he, said, he says to the other robber, we, we were rightly condemned for the crimes we committed, but this man has done nothing wrong. And so he rebukes the other man for mocking Jesus. And then the repentant thief on the cross seeks Jesus' forgiveness. Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. This man was seeing Christ crucified and instead of hard-heartedness, he was believing. Believing that even in death, there will be a promise of life. He seemed to grasp that Jesus can't save himself, but that in not saving himself, he will ultimately live to be able to save others. The foolishness of the cross becomes to him the basis of his faith. And Jesus confirms this with the words, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And so as we see here, as with Simon of Cyrene, who was uh, pulled out of the crowd to help Jesus carry the cross, even as Jesus is now dying on the cross, accomplishing redemption for the sins of his people, the very fruits of that salvation are already beginning to shine through. Brothers and sisters, this is the humiliation that Jesus endured for us. He was verbally mocked and abused at at the lowest point when He was already in such intense physical pain, when He's there in, in great shame, hanging on the cross the crowds, the religious leaders, and even those crucified with Him mock Him and they blaspheme the Son of God. All so that we might be saved. 
But Christ enduring these abuses is also a great example to us. And the Apostle Peter brings this out in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, where he says this, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. He who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth, who when He was reviled did not revile in return, when He suffered He did not threaten, but committed Himself to Him who judges righteously. Jesus is an example for endurance during hardship, suffering, and ridicule. For the love of God, others will ridicule you. They'll ridicule you for your faith in such foolishness. And this, this mockery and ridicule will come from family members. It will come from, from co-workers, neighbors, classmates. It will come from they who do not believe. They will ridicule you for your faith in Christ, calling you names. And when they do this, remember also that not only has Christ given us an example, but he who was the stone the builders rejected and was crucified on a cross of sticks by his suffering, Peter continues, himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Not only is Christ our example, but He is our salvation. The salvation of all those who would not harden their hearts to the Gospel, but who would believe on His name alone for salvation. And thanks be to God that Jesus did not save Himself. That He stayed there on the cross so that by His great love for sinners, even we might be saved to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks for Your Word and for Your blessing, for this reminder of how our Savior, our precious Savior, was mocked and verbally abused in the midst of already enduring such intense physical pain that we can't even comprehend. And yet they insult Him. And yet we praise You and thank You that Jesus did not give in to this last temptation. That He did not become puffed with pride saying, I will prove to them who I am. But He stayed there on the cross because of His great love for us the undeserving sinners that we are. That He endured all that and even death so that we might be saved, that we might have peace and reconciliation with You, that we might have the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, we just take comfort in this, even as we're greatly humbled by it. We take great comfort knowing that a time may soon come, and perhaps some have already experienced it, 
when we're mocked for our faith in Christ, when we're counted as fools for believing in Jesus and believing your scriptures and believing in the miracles of the Bible. And yet we know that what we endure at that time is nothing that your, our Savior hasn't endured on our behalf. Indeed, He even endured more because we can often give reason for people to mock us because of our own sin. But Jesus had no sin. He was perfectly righteous and holy. And yet they mocked Him. And so we praise You and thank You, O Lord, for these things, that You give us this great comfort, even as You reminded us, remind us of the glorious salvation that we enjoy in Christ. And so we pray that You would help us to, true, to be true beacons of light and hope in this community, that we would have boldness to go forth and to share the Gospel with those around us, and that many would come to call upon your name and faith through that witness. And we pray that all this would be for your glory alone. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.